we were taking him out, but I was the last ship, and I had to get all the, all the rest of the people. They got on my helicopter, but there was too many of them. But they were the last ones, so it couldn't leave. You couldn't boot somebody off because now the enemy was coming in to retake this little LZ. So we had to leave. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. The Vietnam War has been called the helicopter war. They were used as troop carriers, gunships, medevac, heavy lift, observation, and aerial trucks. They fundamentally changed the the way that war was fought. Probably nothing is more iconic from that period than the Bell UH-1 Huey. The Huey was the first turbine helicopter to enter production for the US military and brought a significant boost to capabilities over the existing machines. Just to put some numbers around the involvement of helicopters and Hueys, especially in, in Vietnam, there's some figures on the Vietnam Helicopter Pilots Association website compiled by Gary Rausch, and I'll link to that resource in the show notes for the exact numbers, and this is just the basically approximate numbers. So there's 12,000 helicopters used during the war, of which 7,000 were Hueys. 3,300 Hueys were destroyed, and they weren't all combat losses, but uh, you know, across the, the whole period. And almost 2,200 uh, Huey pilots and crew were killed. U.S. Army helicopters clocked up 7.5 million flight hours uh, during the war, and a total of 40,000 U.S. helicopter pilots served during Vietnam. On the Australian side, we had 16 Hueys operated by 9 Squadron Royal Australian Air Force uh, involved. The first flight of the Huey is actually back, all the way back in, in 1956. And October this year will mark 60 years of Huey models flying. So someone is going to have to organise a, a really big party for that one. If there is one book that people associate with helicopters in Vietnam, and especially the Huey, then it would most likely be Chicken Hawk by Robert Mason. In fact, it's probably one of the most recommended books on helicopters in general. If you look around the web and wherever someone has asked for a helicopter book recommendation, then there's a really high chance that someone will chip in and mention Chicken Hawk. The moment as we recall, this has got 471 reviews on Amazon, with 85% of those being five-star. And obviously, Amazon is a, a pretty recent invention, given that the book was published in 1983. The author, Bob Mason, deployed to Vietnam with the 1st Cavalry Division, and their 450 Hueys during the opening of the Vietnam War. As an interesting aside, in prior to World War II, the 1st Cav Division shipped to Australia and trained in Strathpine, Queensland, which is about a 10-minute drive from where I'm sitting here recording this, uh, before the unit then shipped out into the Pacific Theatre during World War II. In Chicken Hawk, uh, Bob covers his helicopter training and his 12-month tour of Vietnam as a, a slick pilot on Hueys, where he flew over a 1,000 air assault missions. I've just grabbed a couple of the comments that are floating around about Chicken Hawk in different reviews, and I'll share them here. I've gone back and reread Chicken Hawk at least four times over the years, and it still holds up so well. 
the Helicopter Pilot's Bible. I first read this book many years ago, and I'm about to buy it for the third time. I recently gave away my copy of this marvellous book to my son. It wasn't too long before I went into withdrawal and brought myself another copy. And they continue here. Chicken Hawk is probably the number one Vietnam memoir on my list, and I've read 100 plus over the last 30 years. Chicken Hawk is by far the greatest book I have ever read, five times to date, I believe. I hadn't started flying helicopters when I read the book, but I could almost feel I, I could. He was so descriptive. Read it again after training, and wow, made me laugh with his description of his own training, and made me cry with his harrowing experiences. It has to be one of the best books I've ever read. I'm on my third copy now, and I keep lending them to friends and never get them back. And that's, look, that's just a, a couple of snippets there without really going much past the, the first page of reviews. So a, a big thanks to show listener Lee Ryler for prodding me for a long time now to uh, track Bob down and get him on the show. It is my very great honor to be able to introduce you to Bob Mason and to find out a little bit more about his experiences. Bob Mason, thank you very much for being able to join us on the Rotary Wing Show. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Look, we'll talk about Chicken Hawk, the book, as we go through. And you know, I've, got, I've grabbed a couple of snippets from, from around the web, but whenever books come up and people are recommending books about helicopters, it's always one of the first ones. And your writing style, like you can sit there and especially as a as a pilot, you can read the description and go, yes, that's exactly what it looks like to pick up a machine or start a Huey or, or learn how to hover. And some of the descriptions that people talk about is like, you know, people who are non-pilots say after they've read the book, they, they think they could actually jump in a helicopter and, and give it a go. Like it's just got that description all the way through. So I'm sure you've had heaps of feedback. Uh, be keen to, to hear kind of the feedback you get about the book. But yeah, I was going to say, you know, when you think about helicopter flying now, what does it bring to mind? What sort of emotions does it bring up? And, and are you still flying? But uh, the image it brings up is uh, I've always been fascinated by them, and I still am. And I still fly. I, I guess people know I fly that little uh, mosquito helicopter. It's made in Florida near me. And uh, as a matter of fact, they're working on a two-place at this moment. It's going to be flying in another month or two, I think. So, yeah, I still fly, you know, and uh, they're just amazing machines to me. I still I can't walk past the helicopter you know, without acknowledging it, it just, <laughs> it's weird. They're, they're kind of magical. Yeah. Do you remember a time before you ever wanted to fly or was it just something that was it? You always wanted to do it? Oh, no, I always wanted to fly for sure. And I even had, like in my book, I said, I had dreams of levitation. It's true. I used to dream that, you know, I could hover around the house uh, and, you know, in a chair or whatever. I mean, it was really <laughs> quite specific. I was, I was, dreaming about hovering and whatnot. And when I, I learned to fly early in a local airport, I was flying uh, Aronco, so the the um, champions. And uh, I remember one day I was, I was taxiing back and I saw a helicopter hovering, which was rare because there were no helicopters in that area. And it was a Hiller 12E. And I just stopped taxiing because I was just, I mean, you have to go back. This was like uh, 59 or something, 58, 59. That's a long time ago. <laughs> yep. And the helicopters were still kind of really weird. And this this was a, a, 
a new helicopter time was a Hiller. So anyway, I said, I got to fly that machine someday. And, and it turned out that that was the machine that I was introduced to in the Army. Was, that was the trainer, the, the, the Hiller. We called it the H-23D. And uh, that's what I was trained in. Did you ever flown in a helicopter before you actually started flight school? No. I had airtime. Yeah. And as most pilots know, if you do have airtime of some kind, a fixed wing airtime, and it translates because most of uh, what the chopper does in the sky is very similar to what airplanes do. So you have that sort of feeling. It's just that when you're trying to hover and stuff, it gets bizarre. <laughs> I don't think anything can help you with the hovering stuff. It's a real leveler. Like, you know, we've seen, you know, we've got the occasional 737 pilot who's, you know, a career pilot will come in and learn to fly. And, and I've heard other people's stories too, but, you know, like, you know, infantry majors who complain about you know, crew rest. I think Cam Stevenson tells a story, you know, he took a, a guy up and tried to get him to hover on uh, night vision goggles. And he basically walked away and said, that no, you guys are crazy. <laughs> so it's a, learning how to hover, I think, for everyone, it's just a, you know, it's a real leveler. Well, you know, I've never tried hovering with night vision goggles. I can imagine that would be difficult as hell. Oh, look, we'll, we'll get on to... You get a... I was going to say, we'll get on to your night flying later on. <laughs> I reckon night vision goggles <laughs> was pretty easy after that. Well, with night vision goggles, I've never, I've never used them either, either but I, my my feeling is that they're monoscopic, sort of, that you don't really get a depth. you don't really get depth very well. I mean, it's just in my opinion, I've never actually used them. But it seems like the limited vision would make it difficult to... So hover, because hovering really does rely on some kind of knowledge of, of a of a horizon somewhere. It's you know, it's one of those funny. I guess it's you know human plasticity. The fact that you can actually train someone up to you know one fly a helicopter uh, and then flying it at night on night vision goggles when you're looking through tubes, and the fact yeah. that you know it actually works and you can do it. It's, it's a lot about um, you know just practice and and rehearsal and and repetition. Absolutely, yeah. You can- fly anything if uh when humans are in predestined or uh i guess pre those predetermined somehow in our genetic backup that we wanted to fly and helicopters were the one of the machines we came up with it's, it's very close to the dream version we probably had is because there's no really there's no real logical reason for wanting to fly as, as an animal on a species you know it doesn't really add to your survival rating to want to go up in the air in some machine you just made <laughs> and there were there were people called tower jumpers in the 14th, 15th century, starting down who jumped to famous for being on kind of bat wings and whatever, and they would jump off steeples and towers, and they usually ended up at the base of the tower in a pile. And uh, see, so the the idea that you had to fly was like built in. People were literally jumping off tall things to try to emulate flying. So why? I don't know. It's just something we wanted to do. And then when you get to the helicopter, you have to admit that there's nothing in nature that flies like a helicopter. <laughs> no, there, and I think you know for anyone who flies them, I mean, it's certainly a you know that passion and and a, and a draw card. Um, Bob, in your book, you talk about the different types of helicopters you went through training, so I won't spend too much time on it. But but looking back to you, you know, what's your impression of each of the the training machines that you went through? If you just had to describe them to someone. Oh, well, you know, the neat thing about those old helicopters is that basically you learn to love them all, even though they're extremely clumsy and noisy. I learned to, I, when I went to the Army, I, I was uh, taught in the, uh, the H-23D, 
Hiller, and it has a, a, a famous sort of system that is about instead of 90 degrees out of phase with the uh, your controls, it's 180 degrees out because you're actually controlling the paddle, the paddles in 90 degrees to the main rudder system, so the precession puts you 180 out. So there's an extra sort of delay there. And then you've got quite a lot of feedback, and the cyclic kind of moves around quite a bit. A lot of vibration, a lot of noise. <laughs> the collective had a, a system on it that would supposedly neutralize the pressure on the collective, but it would invariably go one extreme or the other, and you'd have to so-called pop the collective to get the collective force to neutralize. Otherwise, it would be pulling up or pushing. If you're pushing up, you wanted to go up, and you'd have to hit it, pop it to make it go back down again. <laughs> it was quite fun. Then the then the uh, H-19, which we learned to fly at uh, in Alabama, was a great machine for trading because it was absolutely underpowered. So if you brought it up into, like when he first demonstrated, we brought it up to a hover, God gave us a stick and we're sitting there hovering, and just the slightest movement on the stick, we just settled right out of the sky, we just settled right down the two of us on the helicopter. And it was just simply a matter of finesse with the cyclic. And the guy said, well, what, what's wrong with you? And he picked it back up and he showed me. He could hover it, you know, and, but his control was very, very, very you know, sensitive because that's what it took to fly that thing. So it was great training on flying an overloaded, overloaded helicopter, really. Did they ever carry anything in that? And obviously, if it's that power limited, was there any cargo? Well, it, when he, when he used it, he used it practically speaking. They used it, uh, made a lot of running takeoffs. The same thing happened when I got when I was first assigned out of the army before I went to Vietnam. I went to Fort Belvoir, Virginia, and they had H twenty one. That's the tandem rotor Piasecki Vertol machine, which was used in Vietnam before we got there. This the first helicopter in Vietnam was the H twenty one Banana. And uh, I, I got introduced to that up in Fort Balvar and learned to fly it and fly it around. I had a hell of a lot of fun with it. But it, too, had power problems. It had 21 seats in it, but there was no chance in hell that you would ever get off the ground with 21 people in there. I mean, pretty four people in there, you would have a problem. <laughs> yeah. So invariably, it made, we made running takeoffs with any kind of load. And then you hit the Huey, obviously, and that's where... You know, the rest of the story takes off, and right. you know, I can only guess it's a, a love affair like anyone else who's flown it. Yeah, the Huey, you know, basically, Huey goes pretty far back as well, back to uh, the 50s. You know, it's when they were designing that thing. But it came into production and was put into service around the time that I got out of flight school. The timing was almost perfect. I was. <laughs> In the sense that I got a chance to use the Huey the first time in, in combat. So I was at Fort Balvar learning to fly the H-21, and the Army said, uh, guess what, We're not, you're not going to spend two years here. We're going to send you to Fort Benning, Georgia, where you can join this 1st Cav Division that they were forming up. And that's where I went to, broke my lease, because I had, legal, had orders, I could break a lease and all that shit. So I went to Fort Benning, and... Uh, packed up things and got introduced to the Huey from now from age 21. And the Huey was just uh, a lot of fun, but I didn't have much time. I had 10 hours in it from flight school. So I really wasn't that good at it. I mean, 
I was okay, but I, you know, I wasn't excellent <laughs> with ten hours. Your eyes must have been the size of dinner plates then, because you talk about some of the you know the air mobile operations and the and the low flying and things that you guys went straight into. So I can only imagine. I think you you know you talk about possibly about two hundred hours or so at that point, and yeah. jumping in and doing those sorts of things. What, what were you thinking in terms of when you were actually going through that? You know, what were your thoughts going through your head? Oh, I, I, I you know, from a pilot's point of view, I enjoyed the challenge. It was a it was a load, you know, because I was. I really was not, me and several of us were not yet really qualified for the Huey. So it was OJT for us. We were young warrant officers. And it was quite exciting. And luckily for us, we didn't get really into heavy duty shooting and stuff for the first month we were there. You were and, uh, you were early 20s? You were, How old were you when you first? Yeah, I was 22. 22, yeah. Yep. And I'm 22, and I was doing things that nowadays, looking back, I would say, good Lord, 22 is like a child. <laughs> yep. But I had, uh, you know, I was a I was a pilot in command of a, a, a Huey in the 1st Cav Division in Vietnam, carrying troops into uh, hot LZs under heavy fire. Got shot down once and saved a whole bunch of people because of that machine. Yep. Ne- never uh, had one fail on me just because it failed. I had one fail because the fuel lines were shot out, but <laughs> can't blame a chopper for that. No, not at all. <laughs> all right, but well, if we talk about Vietnam and the, and the Huey experience then, and we spoke quick before we, we hit record, you know, my impression of Vietnam from from the helicopter side, and obviously there's you know, political size and the, the Grand War, but, you know, I have this impression that these flocks of helicopters, you know, moving around the, the battlefield... And probably, you know, as I said before, we'll probably just never ever see that many helicopters airborne and operating again. I think you had 400 helicopters in the div, if that's about right. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we're talking, and again, you know, it might be slightly different in, in the US. And if you have any US Army experience, you know, people who are listening might be different again. But in an Australian context, what, you know, I can't imagine, I don't think I've ever seen more than about 25 helicopters in one place. Uh, so can you kind of just give a, a brief walkthrough of what an air mobile mission sort of looked like in terms of, you know, people walking out to the aircraft, loading up, taking off, and the, the sort of steps involved in the actual mission itself. Well, it was, it was quite a spectacle. As a matter of fact, I always felt, felt part of a spectacle because it was huge. We had, at the first cab division, we had this huge area that we'd cleared, I want to say, by, and by hand, I have to add, we didn't use little boulders. We cleared this huge area for 400 some helicopters and we would stage if we were going to go on a, a big mission a big assault it might take we might take 100 helicopters 80 helicopters and we would uh assemble the troops would either be assembled somewhere else and we would fly to them or they would the troop, we would just line up on this uh, huge place we called the golf course it'd be 80 ships all together spread out and the troops would start lining up, and the famous chalk numbers were when they said, you know, chalk, uh, you're chalk four in yellow flight or something. That chalk is the actual chalk number written with a piece of chalk on the side of the helicopter, and that's why it got called chalk. So then the, the grunts are looking for helicopters with color on it and a number, so yellow four or whatever. So everybody gets on these helicopters, and then they start calling in, and then there's a whole, suddenly we start taking off, the lead ship takes off and they start lifting up and you have this entire 
skies filled with helicopters uh, taking off and climbing up to usually cruise altitude for us usually was uh, 2,000, 2,500 feet or so. And then we would start swarming over towards the objective. And we'd be strung out pretty far because we'd want to allow time for all these helicopters to land into these LZs, which might be a not very big LZ. You might not be able to hold more than you know, eight or 10 at a time. So we'd space it out so that this continuous trail of helicopters could be landing and taking off. And when you were back in the line, uh, a couple of miles from the LZ, you would see, sometimes you see the Air Force hitting, and then you see our gunships coming in beside us. And you'd be, I'd be looking back, I mean, I'd be looking ahead, and I'd see the smoke streaming up from the LZ, and I'd say, but this is just like a movie. You know, you could see, you could see this line of helicopters kind of stair-stepping down from where you are down to the ground way up ahead. And then you fire and bombs going off and traces flinging out. And it's, for me, you forget that you're actually going into it. <laughs> and you keep getting closer and closer. And pretty soon, your own guns start going off. You might, you're either telling your gunners to aim for the tree line or they already know that. And pretty soon, all the guns are going off from your, your guns on the slicks. We had two guns on each ship uh, to keep the, to, for cover and to, and to shoot people. And then we had gunships would be coming in beside us constantly, hitting, protecting our flanks and up ahead. Then everybody's out and we'd be taking hits. We'd be calling taking hits so we'd know where the fire was coming from. And then we'd wait till everybody in that particular flight was unloaded and then they would go. And then you'd just be sitting there antsy as hell as bullets could be coming in, but you, were, you had this to work as a flight. So eventually the guy would go and then everybody would take off and, the next flight would be right behind you, landing in the same place. It's just eventually a, they would just keep they keep doing that. Eventually, they would they would have a place to be filled with the American troops, and the enemy would be overwhelmed. That was the theory. Like it's just so far from my reality. Like it's just as you're talking, just trying to picture that, and uh, yeah, like it's just so different. And how long were the flights? So you'd take off, you'd depart as a formation. Normally, how long would you fly yeah. to the to the LZ? About usually half hour, 45 minutes, something like that. They're usually pretty close by. And then also we flew from, you know, we, when we worked in the field, the 1st Cav Division, I was a member of 229th, the Saw Helicopter Battalion, which had uh, 80 Hueys and I forget how many gunships as well. We had a gunship company, but, uh, we would often be out in the field by our, this battalion would be on the fields and we would, uh, separate from the first cab base operating independently. And we'd be out there for sometimes months. Uh, did the same thing later when I flew with the first, uh, with the, uh, 48th aviation, that was a company size independent unit. And that company was, and the last half of my book is, was actually sort of fun because they were so independent. They, you know, the CAB was a huge, huge organization. I mean, really, really army. Yeah. <laughs> the first CAB was very, very stacked. And they, not to say the 48th wasn't, but they were independent and small enough that we could, uh, you know, we could do missions very quickly and efficiently and didn't have all this overhead with this huge, humongous company. Uh, division unit that we had to haul around. So I enjoyed 48th Aviation. It was a good company. One of the things you talk about in, in the book and also picked up you know, for other conversations with people and, and stories that come back from Vietnam is 
I guess the inequality against uh, throughout the operating area. So you guys in the, in the first cab, you flew for months without any front chest protector, and then you went to the next unit and they had chest protectors and they're actually using spare chest protectors in the chin bubbles. Correct. And then you know when you go back and see what the I guess the rear echelon life was and. You know, you're flying ice around and, and ice machines and things like that. And, but when you were first there, it was sort of, uh, you know, you were digging digging uh, tree stumps out so you can land the helicopters. It, it just seems like such a, a different war for different people. Well, it was like a typically different companies. Yeah, the, we had to clear our own stumps out by hand and all that stuff to make the golf course because we didn't want to ruin it because of the, you know, to the dust. We didn't want to uncover the dirt, but we did anyway. But uh, 48th was, uh, what he said, carrying, we were able to scrounge and get things like ice makers and things like that to take, to take out in the field with us. So it was a pretty civilized group there's, and uh, very effective. We did our missions very well. There's two formation stories. I was just going to pull out and talk about those quickly. And I sure. guess looking back, you know, a bit of black humor, I guess you could almost laugh at a bit of time, you know. It just seems crazy, but you talk about another one where you guys were, were basically hover taxiing over tops of uh, villages at almost you know, 100 feet because the whole formation was flying that low and then you basically just concertinaed and backed up. So obviously the, the first aircraft was slowing down, so everyone else had to slow down behind them and you were pretty much just hover taxiing as a formation. Yeah, we got stuck in these. It was a, Sometimes things would go wrong. Or let's put this way, a lot of times things would go wrong these huge operations and one time this we were flying low level pretty fast so huge long trail formation of about 80 ships overall and uh unfortunately the lead ship lost his radio and so he was trying to signal that he had lost his radio and he was turning he didn't want to lead so he's turning to, to pull away from lead and then so but the flight started following him as he turned <laughs> it was almost it was comical so at any rate, uh, they finally got that together, and we, they circled back. And we got on track, and by this time, though, we had bunched up. We had started slowing down, so we were bunched up like in traffic. And the these villages we were flying over suddenly started opening up on us because we were just hanging out over them. And uh, the first time I saw a uh, machine gun nest that was shielded by a group of villagers, so they were you know held there against their will. But they didn't. They wouldn't move even when we started shooting back, and that's one of the times where I had to, we had to shoot, call fire in on this machine gun nest, knowing we were going to hit these civilians. We, or at least we tried not to. Hit the, we tried not to hit the civilians. We shot. I told them to shoot, uh, you know, across from across the field, and uh, but they didn't move. So some of them got killed. Yeah, there's some pretty, like, he told us pretty horrific stuff. And the fact that that particular incident, you know, that, that stuck with you for a, a long time afterwards. And, you know, they say war is hell. And, you know, you read you know, a book like Chicken Hawk and, and the details of some of the things you saw and just beyond most people's, you know, context and, and just what they even see normally. So, you know, for all the Vietnam vets who have been through that stuff, it's, you know, it's just, again, it's not something we can sort of comprehend in a, here in, in 2016, especially in, a, in Australia. The, well, there's, there's quite a few Australian vets too. Oh, right, yeah, very much. As I understand, yeah. From the same, as a matter of fact, I met some Australians, uh, Australian aviators while I was over there. Actually, I was going to ask, yeah, because we had um, Hueys over there with 5 Squadron and 9 Squadron. Did you, yeah, I don't know, yes. did you meet any of the helicopter guys? 
Yeah, I did. Uh, they were actually, uh, they were patching through. We were over at the Dato and they were patching through. They were part of a search team and looking for some, uh, I can't remember if it was an American Marine chip down or one, an Australian, what they were looking for. And they stopped at our place and we talked for a little while. They were fun. It was strange meeting them out there in the middle of nowhere. I'm sure they thought the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> And Bob, the other one, and I, and I laugh as I read this because I've done something very similar, but you were leading a, uh, a formation back in, uh, I think you said it was like a 40-ship formation into a, into a FARP, and uh, you were the lead ship, and uh, you basically messed up the approach and had to overshoot, and all the rest of them landed, and you had to circle oh, back around God, and yeah. uh, tail between your legs and, uh, <laughs> and come back in afterwards. Jeez, yeah, you like to bring up those, those embarrassing ones. <laughs> Yeah, well, well, I, I do it because I've been, book, I've been you know, pretty much the same place. Part of my book was I wanted to tell the way it was, and yeah, I did. I screwed up amazingly, but it wasn't actually. We were not under fire, luckily. We were, it was just a routine. Uh, we were hauling junk, and we had a big uh, formation hauling a lot of shit. And I was, I had never actually flown lead ship before, and like I said, I was new. And I just when I this was really weird. I, I just felt the weight of it almost, of all these helicopters behind me. So I started making this approach, super gentle approach to the LZ way up ahead. And I was so gentle that I overshot the goddamn the entire thing. But by the time I realized that these, the flight had already broke off <laughs> and we're on the way, you know, like I'm looking like a total idiot. And uh, there, was no, there was no explanation for it. I just, I just, you know, freaked out, I guess. I just could not get over the fact that all these helicopters were behind me for some reason. <laughs> and I'm picturing all them on approach and they're just looking up and seeing <laughs> the single aircraft yeah, saying, well, what, fly away. What is Mason doing up there? And so uh, that was good for a laugh. And then, of course, the other time when I tested the trigger pull on my my first, the first sergeant's uh, pistol inside my helicopter, that was a lot of fun. He, he had been, he was sitting in the back. We were we were loggered on a, this rice paddy area and the battalion commander was not too far away from my helicopter and the company commander, the major, about 30 feet away. And my, the sergeant behind me said, uh, you know, check out the pool. He's just like a gun, gun aficionado. He's, you know, check out the pool on this pistol. I said, no, thanks. I don't, I, I didn't really like the guns. He said, no, check it out. He said, here, and he pulls the, he pulls the clip out. He hands me, he hands me the, the 45. And I, I hold it up. He said, just pull the trigger. It's like breathing on it. I said, okay. So I held it up and I'm like pointing out the window and I'm pointing out, I got, I got the battalion commander in my sights. <laughs> <laughs> I, I swing it back and I'm pointing at the instrument panel and pull the trigger. It goes off. Bam. I blow, explode, blows the IVSI uh, indicator, vertical speed indicator, blows it out, goes through the helicopter, lands in the mud outside. The battalion commander and the company commander are both looking, turning around. I'm sitting there holding this gun. <laughs> smoke, you know, smoke yeah, coating. smoking gun. Oh no! Uh. So that was great. So they that came up to be the uh, the next day. There was in the operations tent. There was a um, uh, the IVSI. The instrument itself was hanging off the bulletin board, and a little tag was uh, first casualty from inside an American helicopter. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine they'd, they'd, they'd take a, a lot of mileage mileage out of that in terms of uh, giving you a hard time. But uh, later... Yeah, so that, that was, that, that, that's, you know, showing people 
I had made some mistakes over there. <laughs> that pales in comparison. Later on, you have a someone shoots a, an M seventy nine grenade in the cavern, and uh, yeah, I, I mean, you're, you're, tell, yeah. I think you're very lucky to be here talking to me at the moment. <laughs> the number of close calls. Uh, I mean, that's that's a you know pales in comparison to to lots of bits and pieces, but. All right, well, let, let's look at something that always comes up in conversations about the book is cutting LZs with Huey rotor blades. And some of these things get passed down, you know, when you go through pilot training and it's kind of, oh, is that just like a, you know, one of those stories people tell and, you know, whether it's half myth or things like that. But it comes up yeah. so many times in, in your book and then, you know, in forums like uh, P. Prune and things like that, you know, other Vietnam vets say, you know, we used to do that. So, yeah, I don't know. Can, can you talk a little bit about... That I don't know whether the first time or you know the other times you do it where you're actually sitting there and your your blades are hitting that tree. <laughs> yeah, as well. The first time we did it was when we were after the the A one E that had crashed, and we were trying to fit it in. The, and, and I wasn't by the time it happened, I wasn't flying, and so it was demonstrated to me by uh, Keith Bob Keith demonstrated. He's known as Lease in the book. And he went down uh, knowing that we're, the only way we could fit in this, like a vertical shaft in this LC, was to, we were going to hit some tree branches. But he said that this, these blades were super, they wouldn't go to bother him. And that's right, he whacked into these, uh, I'm not talking, not two inch branches, but like one inch, and a half inch branches. And it was tearing them up. But inevitably, it did uh, damage the blades. <laughs> it did damage the blades, yes. So did you feel a vibration right. afterwards? No, there's no vibration because there's no material shifting. Okay. You know, like we got bullet holes through the rotor blades. And the other thing is you can't hear you being shot at. All you can hear is you can see. Or if it hits the airframe just right, like when I was shot down, I could hear the bullets hitting the airframe and it went into the engine and shit. You can hear that. But otherwise you can't. And you'd be flying along and you'll see a little hole appear in the canopy right in front of you. And you go, and one time I went, I, you know, I, I'm just flying along. I see this hole, and it's straight in front of me. And I know that I'm actually reaching up to feel my face because I know I must have been hit in the face. <laughs> but it didn't. It was obviously, and it had gone, you know, past me and it hit, it landed in the bulkhead behind me. So it was like mostly silent when it came to gunfire. When you just saw the bullets, bullet holes forming around you. Very interesting. Yeah, and it happens, you know, over and over again in the book. And they talk about, you know, the other gunships coming back, you know, looking like a sieve with, you know, just holes all through. Yeah. Them. Um, and again, yeah, you know, the gunship guys, uh, you know, I, I was, I was uh, slick for the entire time. And when I, when I did transfer to the 48th, they wanted me to become uh, a gunship pilot because I was skinny. Uh, by that time, I weighed about 120 pounds. And that's, the gunships were always overloaded. And I said, no, no I'm, not, I'm not flying any goddamn gunships because uh, uh, I've been doing this and I know how to do it and I'm still alive, you know. And he said, well, you, it's, more, it's more dangerous, you know, this, the Huey, you don't have anything to protect you and you have to stop in the LZ and the gunships don't. And I said, it doesn't matter, I'm superstitious, you know, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> By the way, I was just talking to that, that major who retired as a general just a, a couple months ago, we had a reunion. <laughs> Anyway, I was determined. I would not. I would not have flown the, the gunships, and neither would my buddy Jerry. Simply out of superstition. Yeah. We were. We were both of us kind of. Uh, by the time when this this debate had come up, we had both 800 hours combat time, and we were 
set in our way, so to speak. Yep. So he said, okay, never mind. You guys are the slick pilots. That's what it became. <laughs> I was going to argue. <laughs> you talk about dancing a little the way through, and I think it's something you picked up from uh, – sorry, you mentioned his name just before we missed it, but the fact that you know you, you would very rarely fly a straight line into the pad or on the way out. You, you know, used to, to jink as much as you possibly could. Yeah. There's not much room when you're in formation, though. So was it sort of more of a waggling and, and vertical movement, or sort of how did you actually get around that? Well, see, yeah, I did that. I talk about like one time at the in Albany when we were leaving Albany, we were under fire, and everybody took hits except me, and uh, and I was uh, pulling up vertically out of you know out of the formation level and back and forth and so forth, and you know naturally since I didn't get hit, I attributed it not getting hit to my terrific flying and all that. But that, I think that just you know total bullshit that was kept, meant to keep me sane. And I remember at one time uh, we landed in an LZ and as we landed, we started taking hits, kind of like an ambush. And I wiggled, uh, I wagged the helicopter and a bullet, a bullet had come through and went right along the side of, of me and landed in the, right along through the tail boom. And naturally, if I had been pointing just a little bit more, I would have gone through me. So I'm saying, see, you know, that's, yep, justification. <laughs> that's, it, that's the skill there, right? <laughs> and they said, Mason, <laughs> it doesn't matter. And I, but I felt better about it because. <laughs> All right. So jury's still out on that one, possibly. Yeah, yeah it's definitely superstition. I know. Let's talk about the average hours. Like, you know, again, so you talk about there was a three-day period where you say you flew 20 hours, 10 hours, and 11 hours. It just. Yeah. You know, beggars belief. What were the what were the average sort of flying hours on? And I guess there was no sort of average day, but the days you were flying, you know, how many sort of hours were you flying? On a routine basis, we tried to fly four to six, and but on longer missions like the ones I mentioned uh, when they were preparing for the big battle at Idrang and stuff, uh, we flew that long mission. It was amazing how fatigued we got. The guy I flew with. But it became a uh, uh, what do you call it? Long a long line uh, helicopter guy. Yeah. You know, fighters with long lines that lift timber. But he, anyway, he and I were so tired. We'd come in come back to our little base there, and we would hit hard every single time, and we would laugh our asses off. We'd be sitting, we'd be sitting in the in the Huey, just laughing our asses off, and the crew chief would be looking at, "What the hell's wrong with you guys? You drunk or something?" And yeah, I guess we were drunk. We were drunk with fatigue. We just Beat the death. Couldn't it just couldn't do anything right? <laughs> yeah. Well, after 20, 20 hours just, in, a, in the seat and flying, like I mean, that was the first day of twenty hours, and then to back up again with ten and eleven hour days, like you would, yeah, you know, I can't imagine how you'd you'd have to take turns napping in the cockpit. I'd have no idea. Yeah, well, yeah, I know it was, it, but that only happened. That was that was rare. That only happened uh, one occasion where for the twenty hour days. Most of the time, I'd say. You know, six hour was a pretty good day. And, you know, riding around here, as you know, riding around these things for extended periods of time, you know, the, the work, <laughs> it becomes work. Uh, were, you, were you doing hot yeah. refueling? Yes, we did hot refueling. Yeah. We, flew, we we would fuel off of, uh, we had things called fuel bladders that the Chinooks hauled in. And we'd, we would fly in uh, nose to nose on four ships radial. And they had these little, we just keep running and 
jump out if you had to take a pee, whatever, and uh, they'd fill up with these little gasoline-powered pumps. We never ran out of fuel, not to worry, we're never going to run out of fuel, we're never going to run out of helicopters, and we even have more pilots in case you're worried about being killed. Uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> we'll talk about your training, like when you go back and be an instructor later on, like the, the throughput. And again, I think, um, is it Jerry? He gives a talk, um, uh, is it Wrestler? Your, who's your? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he, he talks about, you know, the, the percentage, like almost a third of the army officers killed in, in Vietnam were, were helicopter pilots. So you guys were, uh, oh, yeah, dro- I would think that's like a third of the officers, you said? Yeah, about a third of the third officers. Of the op- yeah, that's probably correct. Yeah, it's it's probably the same as the as the number of grunts killed percentages, probably. Yeah, uh, it's hard to say, but I, you know, nothing like uh, flying uh, World War Two. You know, I don't think. No, he's got I some mean, figures. Say, it's, he's got some figures there because they think they you know World War. I'm just trying to quickly find a talk, but the the amount of missions you guys flew compared to. The World War Two guys were like a order of magnitude. So he's got here, yeah, bomber pilots yeah. in World War Two was one in seven um, were killed, and they did twenty five to thirty five missions, and you guys were doing yeah. five hundred to a thousand missions. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, just uh, yeah, again, yeah. the numbers well, are, are crazy. I think, I've read about I've read books about the those bomber flights, uh, you know, going into Germany. Uh, it's pretty pretty sad shit. As a matter of fact, my brother in law's father was killed in World War Two in a bomber in North Vietnam. In World War Two. That's weird. Oh North, wow, okay. And, yeah. and one of the guys you one of the guys you flew with, he was a, a glider pilot World War Two, flew okay, airplanes in, in Korea and then ended up with you in, in Huey's in Vietnam. I mean again, yep. it's, it's amazing. Yeah, he was like a dedicated aviator. He was uh, yeah, like you said, World War II first with glider pilots, which was like a suicide mission. But he said, you know, it was really cool. The, the gliders actually liked them. They took entire flight classes and said, you guys are now glider pilots. And they'd send them all to, the, divert them all to glider school. And the gliders were actually kind of cool to fly. He said that when they actually used them, they flew like anvils. He said they, they trained with them basically empty. And they were, you know, they flew very nicely. And then when they used them, you you fell like an anvil, you crashed, and then you the, you had to fight your way back, <laughs> uh, fight your way back to get another glider. It was like <laughs> they were getting off track there, but, but how, yeah, the, how they the were. how did they launch the gliders? How they launch gliders? They they pull them over to the battery with uh, the transport airplanes, you know, the bombers, and I don't know the exact the DC threes could carry several gliders, I think. Okay. Or maybe one. I'm not sure about that, but I know that they they pulled, they towed them to the battle area with airplanes, and then just cut them loose, and then they would uh, glide down. But they ended up loading way too heavy, and they they sank very fast. Yeah, it kind of wouldn't be my first option if I was planning things. But fair enough. No, uh-huh. it di- it didn't work worth the damn. It was terrible, wasted wasted manpower. Can we talk about night flying in Vietnam? Night flying? Yeah. Well, the first thing I, when I, I was flying with the first cat division on a flight school in Vietnam. And, but when I got there, I had no experience at all, basically, except on a flight school. And one of the things they did was, in the cab was fly night formation. And they did it, uh, not even with position lights on, they used their cockpit lights. 
the bread cocked the lights. You would fly within a rotor distance of the, the lead ship, and you could judge your position by the plane of the cockpit panel. That's how close we flew. And when I first saw that, I thought that was impossible because it was just too goddamn close, and it was you know dark. Yeah. <laughs> but after a while. And, I mean, and obviously you did it. really good at it, and uh, I mean, doing it. what it did, the advantage was it kept you close enough together that you could control a, a formation. And you might want to control a formation because you might be getting ready to land in a really tight area that you all can't fit in unless you're tight. And if you try stretching out your formation at night, you'll lose track of each other and you'll end up, you'll end up crashing each other. You know, but there's all over the place. So you have to keep your eyeball directly on that aircraft or you're, you're going to lose him and you're going to, end up colliding yeah I, I just can't picture this i mean yours there must have happened all the time but you know i'm just trying to put myself in that cockpit and and flying that close at night and i just i just can't imagine it <laughs> like it's yeah so, so well, happy with the formations well this would be so formations of four so i remember the first time i was flying number two let's see one two three yeah it was number two which on the left 45 off lead flight, and then there was another another flight of four behind us, another flight of four behind us, et cetera. But as far as we were concerned, we're flying on, you know, there's four of us in a group. Yep. And did you have limitations and, in terms of, like, moonlight, or this is just regardless of the conditions? When we did it, there was no moonlight. The first time I ever saw it, there was no moonlight. But you have to know that when you, if you're flying on not using any lights, including landing lights, and you're wearing uh, red goggles during the day and shit like that. Just starlight can give you some idea of what's going on. I mean, you get close enough to trees. I've I've been hovering at night over trees over at LZs and stuff, and I can I can make out this ghostly sort of image of tree leaves and shit when they get close enough. You know, in, in with no moon because there just is a little bit of light coming from the stars. And these days, I understand they have machines that or goggles that do that. I, like, I, I would love to see one of those. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, I'm just thinking of the flying that I've used. Go, you know, it's pretty good. You know, you're obviously limited, but oh, yeah, it just blows me away. I remember doing you know night approaches to, to T aids. Uh, so you you know you fly a circuit at sort of a thousand feet, and you'd set up on a, a long final, and there'd be this pattern of lights in a T, and you'd have to make your approach to it. And um, that's some of the hardest things I've ever done, you know. <laughs> and yeah, so with no lights, uh, look, you know, I, I just can't even picture it. So um, you, you flew a news well, crew. I, I have to, uh, the, the, the good thing about having been in the army and that Vietnam experience is we got the chance to do things in helicopters that you would never have ended up doing normally. Let's say. I mean, I from that point of view, I was really impressed by. The robustness, let's say, of that helicopter. Yeah. You know, taking it through. I remember one time having it. I had left the LZ on a, on a hillside near Docto, and I was we were evacuating the troops out of this, and we met them at this little LZ on a kind of a ridge, and uh, we were taking them out. But the, I was the last ship, and I had to get all the, all the rest of the people. They got on my helicopter, but there was too many of them. But they were the last ones. So it couldn't leave, you couldn't boot somebody off because now the enemy was coming in to retake this little LZ. So we had to leave. So I picked up to hover 
and uh, got the low RPM warning and all that and moved forward. The only way out was to go downhill. And the only thing stopping me from going downhill was this, this row of brush, uh, low brush at 10, 12 feet. And so I just nosed into that stuff and kept on going. And the rotors, you know, missed it all and <laughs> gained speed because I was heading downhill and hauled us all out of there. <laughs> it was like amazing. And I was like, wow, what are these, these helicopters, man. <laughs> yeah. They are tough. And I did not hit the tail rotor. That's another. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely it's just stuff that just doesn't. And I guess that's what we spoke about before, too, is it's just a snapshot on time in terms of helicopter history where, you know, so much of that stuff will probably just never ever happen again in terms of scale and. And uh, the beating, I guess you put those machines through. There was one oh, stage. No, no. There was one stage you flew a, a CBS news crew around, and, and, the, and you basically, you know, you say you, you did a, a little bit of showboating in terms of flying some you know, pretty big flare approaches and things like that. Were you able to ever track down that that clip um, when you came back to the US? And I, my, I did not. My agent did. Uh, we checked on a the clip where I went in and got the. He was like the president or vice president of CBS News, and he was wounded. I got I, that clip showed up. As a matter of fact, my wife saw. I never saw it. Uh, we went in. I did. I took down a few branches on the way in, and that was filmed by them. But I've never seen it. Okay, so is it still available online somewhere? I'm sorry. Is it, is it still available online somewhere? Well, I, I, it's not, I don't think it's online. My my agent found it from the CBS people had it in the archive and there, at one time there was going to be a television show and they were going to use it that yep. didn't happen so I've never seen it they've got it and uh, you know I don't even know how to get it okay but uh, also I did take out a tail rotor and helicopter when we were coming in for a landing with a, a gaggle like 12 of our ships and we landed in a LZ it was all uh, it was a, it wasn't the enemy LZ it was our own and it was with, filled with uh, red dust. And the fight, I was at the end of, we were the last ship in, and the flight was like, disappeared on all this red dust, kind of big cloud of dust. I sank into the dust, and I thought it was about where I was going to be landing, and then it, I heard clunk or thump or something, and both of us, what's that, you know? And then I couldn't see anything, and I was thinking I was letting down, and then I noticed the compass was starting to spin. <laughs> yeah. That's when I first clue that I had uh, taken out the tail rotor somehow, and then uh, so then when I realized that I tried to cut power to auto to do hovering auto and still invisible, but my uh, pilot I was flying left left seat the pilot had locked down the throttle, so I couldn't roll it off and I just so I just went ahead and pushed it down and uh, it kind of hit and twisted over on the gear tipped a little bit and it came back down again <laughs> and it had to, all it was was I had hit its tree had been blown up and was lying on its side and the roots were sticking up and my tail rotor had snagged one of those little roots and just stopped it uh, and that's what had happened but I didn't when the interesting when the dust settled how close were you to the the nearest machine oh I, yeah I was uh, a bit spacing I mean I, I was I was I didn't lose track of everything until, you know, we got within 12, 15 feet of the ground. I knew I could see where they were. And all of a sudden 
you know, I, I disappeared in the cloud dust that I was making. And I hit, that's about when I hit the, uh, I could not see that, uh, I did not see the tree. <laughs> uh, I hit the tree. Well, it seems a pretty common thing in Afghanistan. Like, you know, the guys are hitting so much dust over there. But um, it, it, I don't know, like it was a, that seemed like a fairly unique occurrence, like that particular one. It didn't seem like you hit that much dust or or did you have a fair bit of dust there? Well, it depends on where you were in Nam. This was in the Central Highlands, and uh, they call it laterite dust. It's uh, red, like red Georgia clay almost. And then uh, when it's dry, it just blows around like uh, red clouds. You can see them in some of the Vietnam uh, news clips. I mean, I've got a picture of Chinooks bringing in some ammo to a, a place of the dust, and they just virtually disappear. Yep. It's, it's amazing stuff to fly. I have flown in... Uh, that's like I have flown in uh, basically sandstorms at uh, Tuiwa. We flew, we flew in uh, 60 mile an hour winds, bringing getting our choppers into. We made a camp at, on the beach at not Tuiwa, not Trang, and uh, we were among the last coming in, and we were flying sideways to get to our where, you know, where we were putting the ships down. <laughs> it was sand blowing. It was like uh, it was like you know Lawrence of Arabia or something. It was, all this sand blowing place. It didn't seem to hurt the Hueys. I, I mean, we didn't do it a lot, but it didn't seem to bother them. Did you have dust separators on the intake set? For the no, intakes? no, we did not. Okay. At that time, we had nothing like that. And we didn't have the diffuser, the infrared diffuser on the back of the Hueys they used near the end of the war. It looks like a toilet seat comes out, a toilet yeah. that comes out of the back of the Huey and directs the gases up into the rotor system to disperse the heat signature because they were getting heat, uh, heat seeking missiles over there in 72 and 73 in Hueys. Yeah. You know? <laughs> that was, that was a different war altogether. It's another story. I wasn't there and I, I, you know, I didn't know anybody when I, obviously while I was there, when I got, I've met people since then, it was a completely different sort of war. Uh, all right, there's a couple of things I just want to touch on, I guess, before, because I'm just conscious of the, t- the time uh, there, Bob. So I did have a ask for questions on Facebook, and uh, Braden Long put in a, in a question there. Uh, he's asked, mm. you know, and if I get the pronunciation wrong, I apologize, but um, La Drang, uh, um, he said, did you guys realize the significance of the Battle of uh, La Drang uh, when you're actually flying those missions? Uh, so no, that's I Drang. Uh, is it Ida Drang? I'm not sure of the pronunciation. I, I, some people call it Ida Drang, Ida Drang. It means reverse. I, you know, actually, I don't remember what it means. Uh, but it's a uh, place near Play. It's near Play Me and Play Coup. And uh, I didn't. We did not. It was. It was because it was the first major battle that we'd ever had. So we had no experience, and we didn't know it was major until you know it was over. Really, cause we just knew that there was a, a huge number of regiment of Vietnamese. North Vietnamese regulars, the uniform North Vietnamese that we had never met before. We were fighting Viet Cong, and we've been there like three months. And so this was like a big, a big test of the first cab. We knew that, and it was we knew that we were using a lot of helicopters. But uh, it wasn't until after the uh, battles that we realized it was really big. I mean, that's the first time I ever saw. I saw American troops in stacked up on one another along the side of the Russian runway at, at Tsaiku that we had brought in from the, I mean, it was like a meat grinder out there. It was terrible. 
Also, heart-wrenching parts, you know, you, you talk about uh, one of your gunners finding his brother in, in one of the, the piles of uh, yeah. the, the dead bodies and things like that. And it's just, you know, uh, over and over again, there's things in there and uh, that, uh, yeah. Well, look, that leads very neatly in, into this next question, I guess, and is in a book and definitely your follow-up book, you know, you've had a lot of stuff to, to deal with in terms of, uh, you know, reoccurring dreams and, and stress and your reactions to that uh, towards the end of your tour there and, and definitely when you came back uh, stateside. We're, you know, we're seeing a, a wave of guys come back from Afghanistan here in Australia and understand that the US is a, a big thing as well is, again, that sort of, you know, uh, reactions to, to seeing a lot of stuff you see in an operating theatre like that. Do you, all the stuff you've gone through, do you have any advice for, you know, anyone who's going through the same sort of things that, that you went through or is there things that people can do before they go in that kind of situation to try and, you know, inoculate themselves a little bit from some of those reactions? Well, you're talking about CTSD, uh, post-traumatic stress reaction from this kind of trauma. And I I can tell you this uh, from experience from me and my friends, uh, uh, the symptoms continue for apparently all your life, but you can learn to, well, for instance, I, I used to be problems sleeping. I can sleep now. And I would say that for me, the best thing I ever learned was uh, how to do uh, meditation, uh, mindfulness meditation, where you can focus on being able to control your what you're thinking about because you end up usually with post-traumatic stress disorder. You end up having recurring thoughts that won't leave. You just get caught, trapped in a sort of a loop. And it'll keep you awake if you're worrying about it constantly. With meditation, you can learn, with practice, you can learn to realize you are thinking, you're seeing these experiences, and you can acknowledge that you are and then put them away and go on to your breathing again. And so it's a discipline that you can learn with practice. It's helped me a great deal. Is there any resource that you can point someone to, whether it's a book or a particular type of program, to, to look at more of that? I can't think of a name right now. Okay, I'll I'll grab it off you later on, and I'll, I'll put it in the, uh, yeah. the show notes and, and put a link to that because, yeah, you know, again, we're seeing you know another wave. I like to uh, Han walking meditation is one of my favorite walking meditation. Okay, yeah, by Chuck Nhat Han. There's a who's now in a coma. I understand. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, yeah. Mindfulness meditation has uh, been around a long time. It's a Buddhist thing, but it does. The, the trick is the ending the the, the recurring thoughts because most people aren't aware that they're having them. You get, you, you get part of it. You like you're there again, sort of. You're involved in this, and it's not just a thought. It's a, a, an event. It's you're reliving in your mind, and you, your body will react to that event as though you're really there. So you're going to be stressing out. You're going to be doing yourself medical harm actually by you know going through the stress all the time. So learning to monitor what you're thinking, acknowledge what you're thinking and get back to your breathing, you can learn to control those okay. events. Okay. Well, that's some good stuff for people to take away. Uh, and the yeah. last couple of things we'll, we'll touch on, uh, and again, we spoke before it, you know, how some of this knowledge just falls away over time. So I've been flying the, you know, the Hughes 300 or the CBI, uh, keeps changing its name, but for you, when you were flying, it was the TH-55. And mm-hmm. on top, there's a neurofoil over the canopy. And, and, you know, I've kind of asked and people have said different things, but again, I've just found out what it was there for. And in your book, you talk about, 
they used to experience a tuck over in auto rotation where you would just get in that situation and the controls wouldn't be effective. So if you just quickly touch on that, and if anyone else doesn't know, that's what the, the aerofoil on top of the, the 300 is. Yes, it happened in uh, Mineral Texas when I was there as an instructor pilot. And we found that uh, a pilot that we had some, we had some TH-55As come out of the sky and, and crash. We didn't have any call from the people involved. We just found them crashed. Then we had a call from an IP who had called on the way down saying that he, during our rotation, the aircraft had nose straight over and he couldn't pull it. He couldn't get it to pull out. He was calling, went into this. We operated at 500 feet generally. So he had called. He had the presence of mind to actually call and tell us that he couldn't pull it out of the dive. So he died. And then they, so they grounded all the KH-55As. They had, they did some test flights in California and uh, t- taking him with a guy wearing parachutes and stuff and took it up very high and found out that if he did, did an rotation, pushed the stick forward, that it would pop, the, the, the aircraft would pop forward. And it would then, you, if you pull back on a stick, it would not come out of the, of, the, of the dive. But if you pushed forward on the stick, it would start to come out. So it reversed control. And it took 1,500 feet to get out of, of this plunge. And of course, we flew the 500 feet, so that was a big laugh. At any rate, they, it was an aerodynamic uh, phenomenon that caused it to do that. And it got kind of stuck in its own uh, airflow. So when they put a scoop thing on top of it to change that airflow, it doesn't do that anymore. But it made us nervous because when they came back and they demonstrated it to us, <laughs> uh. <laughs> the pilot, the IPs. And uh, th- that's why we would, we would, if we did give from then on, when we gave a, a student uh, our rotation, we would have our hand right in front of the stick because if he pushed forward, that thing would just snap right on over. Yikes! All right, well that's that solved one problem for me. Or we'll, we'll just uh, yeah, I didn't actually know what that design feature was for. So that's uh, <laughs> you know, I can at least push that back out into, into common knowledge and keep that sort of uh, circulating. Uh, the other ones, did, Bob, did you ever get your uh, Distinguished Flying cross through? In, in your second book, you mentioned in passing, because um, you, you got a bronze star, and I don't know which incident you got that for. Uh, but I'm sorry, the which one? The English that, way? There was a, a DFC. There was one mission where you um, had to hover and, and drop down supplies, and the aircraft captain um, was awarded a, a DFC, I think. Oh, yes, yes, yeah, yeah. that's right. Did you ever yeah. get your your one through? No, I never got it. Okay. Uh, matter of fact, that that issue came up not too long ago. As the the the, the guy Ringknocker, who's my company commander at the time, found out about it for the first time just a few months ago. <laughs> but the guy that was the aircraft commander did not know that he was the only one. He thought I had gotten a DFC too, because yeah. I had actually been a controlled aircraft. So he was surprised too. But no, I, I never. Okay. Uh, two last ones. Have you, have you flown a Huey since? Like there's a couple of sort of um, reenactment yeah. flights kicking around. Have you had a chance to, to fly with those guys? I flew one in uh, Pima, Arizona two, three years ago now. Okay. At the, Air, at the Pima Air Museum. It's a big museum. And they had a chance. They offered me a chance to fly a H-mile Huey 
if I wanted to see if I could still fly them. And I said, yeah, give me, give me that thing, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I flew it at, uh, in the, among the buildings there. We had, we had 30 mile an hour winds gusting among those buildings. And I was, so I was cognizant of the fact that it was gusty and windy and among these buildings. But the Huey is such a dreamboat. I hadn't flown it for 47 years. Picked up on the stick, came to hover, and I looked. I was so smooth and so so secure. I looked over to make sure that the guy wasn't flying. <laughs> he's he's grinning and waving and everything. And it was just the the, the the Huey just so much a part of my soul that I didn't even you know I didn't even think about. It. I just brought it up to hover and stayed there. And then we did some tail tail uh, pedal turns and then went off to take off and all that good shit. It was fun. I was absolutely amazed. It felt completely familiar. Fantastic. Bob, I, <laughs> I remember my first um, first start up in a Huey, like the very first flight on, on the transition course. And as we started up and the blades started spinning, the cabin was bouncing up. I was basically bouncing vertically in my seat up and down and trying to read the gauges and just, you know, I couldn't read the gauges because we were, you know, bouncing up and down. And I was just thinking, oh, my goodness, how am I ever going to fly this thing? I can't even read the gauges. And then obviously, this Huey? yeah, and obviously it settles out, and you know that was fine from from there on in, and things like that. But that's just my vivid huh. impression of that very first start ever, seeing that front seat and having the thing just bob up and down as the the blades were spinning up, <laughs> and, and and I just I could not read the gauges, and I was just thinking, oh, you know, maybe I've, I've come as far as I'll, I'll come. Yeah, well, Huey, yeah, the big old blades, one to one, when it's operating. Also, when you're cranking up, you'll get it'll be out of balance for a little while. Yeah. But it also does it when you pick up a Huey. The natural construction of the Huey makes the nose come up first because the mass is aligned yeah. forward. So it just naturally the nose comes up, meaning that the fuselage rocks backwards sort of when you bring it up to a hover. If you're not aware of that, you'll push the stick forward to compensate. So, but that was automatic when I picked it up. I didn't think two seconds about it; just picked it up. Yep. It's really, you know, I think there's a pretty intense training and experience in Vietnam. Well, that's the really. other thing. It's amazing too. Like you look back at that book and the, the events in Chicken Hawk kind of span, you know, maybe two and a half years. Uh, so, you know, kind of a year in theatre and a bit of the side. But when you finish reading the book, you feel like it, it's much more than that. Like, But it was really a, a very concentrated period. Yeah, it definitely was. It was one year of my life and uh, it's, it's in that story. Still talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, the people, reasons, there's even people that are thinking of making a movie. That's been yeah. that's happened several times that people have thought of doing that. But yeah, well, it's no, amazing no. that something that seemed uh, you know a short period of your life can turn out to be such a big part of your life. Flying wise, like you obviously went back and did instructing. Um, Bob, is, is there a couple of you know gems that? you picked up along the way or, or people told you in terms of actually, you know, flying advice that you've sort of carried through and, you know, would serve other helicopter pilots well? You mean flying, uh, flying tips? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, here's one I can tell you. The, the Huey, I know how to get a Huey out of the sky really fast. Okay. Which is not part of a normal training. And it's like if you're, uh, like say three or four thousand feet up, and you really need to get out of the sky really fast. You can bring the Huey back till you you're like you're stalling on an airplane. Just bring it on back until it comes down to like twenty miles an hour, and then jump dump the nose, and it will take you. You will come down 
but 1500 2000 something like that. We used to do the same thing, but then obviously, you know, a bit of angle of bank and, and the thing would just corkscrew down. Yeah, you can corkscrew, that's right. Yeah. With a bit of left. <laughs> okay, so that's my big tip, right? So you already knew that one. Oh, that's right. That's not, yeah, because yeah, of the army stuff, but uh, yeah. Uh, no, well, come to the time there and um yeah look you know again uh there'll be a lot of people out there and you know you look at the reviews on amazon for for chicken hawk and um you know comments and forums um you know around the place and there's obviously lots of uh feedback and, and thank you um out there in terms of capturing that and, and sharing it and you know again thank you very much for having the, the time to chat today bob i really appreciate sure. it sure that was fun one of the other questions, before I lose, one of the other questions folks had was, is there any way they can get a copy of a, a signed, signed copy of the book? Is there a way they can go and, and do that? You're saying for, for you, you think? No, like, I've had other people ask you, if there's a way oh, they can. People? Yeah. Yeah, well, the best way to do that, but I don't know how to do it from Australia, but I, do, I have done it for people all over the world, but basically you send me the, the book and I will sign it and send it back, but you send it with a, Self-addressed stamped envelope inside the package. Yep, and the best and, website uh, where they can get all your details. I'll, I'll give you. I'll give you a mailing address. Well, you can read it out now, or I can get it off you, and I can put it in the uh, the the show notes or the uh, blog post that goes with this. Okay. Okay. Right. Tops. All right. Thank you. Um, I'll let you get back to enjoying your evening there in the, in the US. I've got a a day here ahead of us <laughs> in Australia, so uh, that's right. awesome. Thanks very much, Bob. All right. Good talking to you. Bye. I hope you really enjoyed that. I had uh, a lot of fun doing that. And uh, a big thanks to Bob for taking the time out to, to chat with me. If you've read Chicken Hot previously, then hopefully that brings back a heap of memories of the different stories that are in the book. And if you haven't read it yet, then you know you can look forward to that. And as you do it, you'll have a bit more context as you go through. I finished the interview and got off the call and then realized I still had a, a heap of questions that I hadn't got around on and forgotten to ask him. For example, talking about formation flying, there's parts in the book where he talks about overlapping the actual rotors. So not talking about, you know, one rotor die or uh, two rotor die spacing. They're actually, you know, over the top of the, the next machine they were that close. And then they also would lager up in these fields near the, the hot LZ. So they'd go in, drop the, the troops off and come back and land in a field and shut down and wait for the call to come in and for the extraction. So again, I'm just picturing you know a bunch of helicopters, not particularly stealthy, landing with no protection force in a you know rice paddies and in fields, uh, and then sitting there. Uh, and again, I, I would find that you know very unnerving, just being in. Uh, I guess at that stage was hostile territory, and then with nothing more than the helicopter and the, and the crews that you're sitting there with. If you have any questions for Bob that I didn't cover or that you came up with as you were listening then please do add them to the comments for this episode at rotarywingshow.com and I'll try to group them together and pass them on. As Bob indicated, if you were interested in a signed copy of the book, I have a mailing address in the show notes on the website where you can send your copy of the book with a prepaid return mail package and he would be happy to sign those. It's pretty easy to track down a copy of Chicken Hawk 
and Bob's other books at most online booksellers. I've included a couple of Bob's photos in the show notes, but you can also find a heap more over at robertcmason.com. Jerry Towler is the, the real name of a wrestler in the book, uh, one of the characters there, who flew you know, many, many missions with Bob. He's given a, a fantastic talk to an aviation historical group, which has since been put up on YouTube. I've embedded that video in the show notes as well. I'm pretty blown away on YouTube. It's only got 1,400 views, which I think is amazing, given you know, not only the content that he covers, but also the, the interest that surrounds Chicken Hawk, the book. If you want to go further into what you've heard in this interview, then I you know, highly, highly recommend uh, seeing that video on the website. And lastly, there is a, a video of Bob flying a single seat, a turbine helicopter called a Mosquito XET that you can watch there too. If you are new to the show, then please do subscribe at iTunes and get on the email notification list at the website, rotarywingshow.com. You can also find the show on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you to those who have recently left reviews on iTunes. It's always great to get your feedback and find that you're, you know, getting these episodes are interesting and useful. And I'll read some of those out loud in a, a future show. The goal of the show has always been to try and capture stories from around the helicopter world industry, you know, whether it's, it's current uh, stories or times gone past, and to share those experiences around so we can, we'll keep doing that. And you can look forward to some really interesting guests over the next couple of weeks. Today's episode is sponsored by trainmorepilots.com. If you're looking for resources to market your flying school or aviation company, then trainmorepilots.com is a good place to start looking for tools and advice. Thanks for taking the time out and listening in again to the show from wherever you are in the world. If you're the one listener who's just turned up in the stats from Algeria, uh, a big day to you from Australia. And you'll have to get in contact with me and let me know what you're flying over there. I've been your host, Mick Cullen, and that's me signing off for this episode. Catch you next time.